All right, welcome along to the RT Soccer Podcast. Raf Giallo here, and this week I'm alongside Ollie Cahill and Graham Gartland, who are veterans of past FAI Cup finals and winners as well um, in their own right multiple times. Um, coming up later on, we've got a full interview with Tim Vickery on all the South American teams at the World Cup. We're also going to talk about the minimum wage agreement within the league and also the Ireland squad for the upcoming friendlies against Norway and Malta. But uh, first off, we are going to talk about the FAI Cup final, Derry City beating Shelburne 4-0. And Ollie, you were telling me off air you were at it. It was a great occasion. Yeah, it was. It was a fantastic occasion. There was you know, a big crowd over 32,000, which was, which was fantastic to see. Um, Derry had huge support down. Um, and obviously the, the Derry team gave them plenty to cheer about as well. Um, it was it was disappointing from obviously from Shelburne's end, but uh, Derry thoroughly obviously deserved the win. And only uh, saying there from the it was in the first minute they had a chance. Um, through was McGonagall and Clark came out and made a good save and smothered it. But from then on they had the momentum and had the bit between their teeth. And, and Shelburne were never able to wrestle any kind of control back from them of the game. And, and obviously Derry ran out comfortable winners in the end. And Graham, what was your vantage point for the final? Yeah, we were up in the media section. Um, I was doing a bit of work for a, a, a rival company, Raf, so I won't mention it. Um, but uh, yeah, it was similar to Ollie. Like, did, I, I thought Derry, people are saying they dominated the game without really battering them. Like, it wasn't like they had chance after chance and it was that, but they had control of the game from the start. Uh, I agreed, like, straight away, McGonagall gets in has a chance, I think, grading off the, the Roy has a chance at 3-0 as well, where he nutmegs the boy and goes through and blazes one over the bar. So he probably had about four chances in the first half and scored two of them. And then the second half was similar, where he had maybe three chances and scored uh, two as well, one being a penalty. But yeah, he just... Um, I thought Rory Higgins got his tactics spot on. He, he spoke afterwards about playing grading off the right, an out-and-out right winger that's direct, and that pins the wing-back uh, Farrell back. Um, I was surprised to see Farrell play as a, as a left wing-back because he, he'd been playing as a an inside right or an inside left uh, off like a off Boyd in the last few games. I know he played really well in Tala there and scored. He played an inside right at Tala and scored two goals, actually, and he was really effective in the game. Um so I was surprised to see him and playing play there, considering how well Malloy was doing as well. And uh, like that little tactical battle between Higgins and, and Duff was really interesting in 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 that sense. But um Derry Derry totally dominated the game, and I think it's the most comprehensive win in the cup finals history. Yeah, especially when we're used to like extra time and penalties now. It was kind of, it was a bit it was a bit weird uh, for it to be finishing within ninety minutes plus stoppage time. But anyway, the story of the game: Jamie McGonagall opening the scoring on eighteen minutes, and then Cameron McJanet with a brace either side of the of the break, and then uh, Jordan McNeff with the penalty at the very end. So let's listen to the managers: Rory Higgins and Damien Duff. Ah, listen, it's not about me. It's for the people of Derry. We haven't won this cup for ten years, which is too long. And I genuinely mean it. The, the most satisfaction I get out of it is making the people of Derry happy. That's it. They'll be happy tonight for the rest of the week and maybe into the future because this is a signal, isn't it, that this Derry City side yeah, are here yes. to stay. Uh, we came up a bit short in the league. We give ourselves too much work to do. Um, but this, they won the cup as special, but they won it in the manner that we won it as extra special. Ryan Graydon proved a masterstroke for you. He's, a, he's, an, he's an unbelievable athlete. He's a greyhound. Uh, and he's got bits that he needs to improve on, but that'll come 
he, he, he was a fantastic uh, signing for the club and, and he'll only get better. Were you able to relax in the second half as the goals went in? I was delighted. The third one uh, was a huge goal in the game. Um, aye, so listen, Jordan McEniff getting his first goal for the club. His brother Aaron scored a penalty in the, se uh, in the same goal in the cup final as well. So special for him as well. And special for Cameron McJanet, named player of the match, two goals in a final. Did you think at all about letting him have the penalty? Now listen, Cameron McJanet has gone completely under the radar. Um, but we don't take him for granted. He, he's, a, he's an absolutely outstanding player. He's got all the tools um, and we're delighted to have him. As we're delighted to have This is a special group of people and players and I and, uh, can't speak highly enough of them. It must be a desperately disappointed dressing room in there. It is. It's a young dressing room. Um, you know, I think there is a hint of regret, maybe as a collective and, a, and as individuals, how we give the best performance. Today, no. Uh, we knew to win the game, listen, had to be the perfect game, similar to what we did against Bowes in the core. But listen, it wasn't meant to be. Um, I'm so proud of them. Me as a manager, as a coach, I've walked into Lansdowne Road today 10 foot tall and I'll walk out 10 foot tall. It was a terrific occasion. Maybe you might not appreciate that right now, but you know, this is the pinnacle of the domestic game and the atmosphere, all of that. Is that any consolation to you? Yeah, listen, I've enjoyed today. I'm not humiliated. It's on paper, it's a humiliating result. But uh, absolutely no. Showpiece of the, the Irish football and calendar year. Amazing day. I'm hooked for life, whether I'm going to be on the sideline or not. So, um, no, fantastic from a, the League of Ireland family point of view. From Shelburne, yeah, listen, there's going to be a hint of disappointment. But we're back. We're staying for another year in the, in the Premier Division. And, you know, we've maybe planted a few seeds to build on. Tactically, was the, the um, decision for, from Rory Higgins to choose Ryan Graydon, was that one you were expecting? Oh, listen, we knew what their team would be, 10 out of 11. Uh, the 11th one was always going to be Graydon or Kavanagh. They are both uh, bring a different dynamic. Obviously, Kavanagh coming inside his left foot, it's a wonderful left foot, and Graydon more powerful direct. He might say he was there or thereabouts for man of the match, um, and you see him on the team sheet. Listen. Shane will be disappointed. He's obviously been struggling with injury. Um, he's an attack-minded player. Graydon obviously gave him problems early outdoors. That's why we changed uh, personnel. But uh, listen, they were the better team on the day. They're a team that have, you could say, League of Ireland superstars. We're still young uh, in our infancy, you could say. But we'll keep growing and keep working hard. Okay, so that is Shelburne manager Damien Duff. And before that, Derry City boss Rory Higgins, who is celebrating FAI, Club, or FAI Cup glory with the uh, Candy Stripes. Graham, just in regards to what Damien Duff mentioned there, obviously his side was a young side and were the underdogs going in. But Derry, um, as you mentioned already, I mean... They started the game on the front foot and there was a lot of pressure on them going into it. So the way they approached it obviously worked out perfectly. Yeah, you touch on it when you're the favourites in the cup and winning when you're expected to win is a difficult thing sometimes. Um, I think you get free hits sometimes as an underdog. So all the expectation was on there and they delivered. But when you have experienced players in that situation, uh, McElhenney, Duffy, who'd obviously been involved in cup finals, Connolly probably been involved in, in big games over in Scotland. Um, I think the, probably the most inexperienced one would probably be Brian Maher, the goalkeeper, who's an Irish under-21 international. So um, I, I thought they brought their experience to the game, but then on top of that, I also thought they brought their quality to the game. McElhenney's pass for the for the first goal um, out to Graydon is fantastic. 
Um, and and then Duffy brings his quality for the second goal. So it's not only that they brought their experience, they brought their quality as well. And then even to touch on what Damien's saying afterwards, I think he'd be disappointed that they didn't show more of themselves. When you are a young team, you probably have to bring more energy to the game um, and, and, and show a little bit more of what made them get to the final in, in, in that they were aggressive, they were high energy, they, they played on the front foot, they pushed up. But I thought Derry didn't allow them to do that with the, with Duffy and Graydon being so high in advanced areas and that allowed the fullbacks to then get high and join in the attacks and that allowed then the three in midfield then to drop do little dropouts and get control of the game. So, um, But Derry did turn up on the day and they, like that, their experience counted. Yeah, and that battle on the wings, i.e. wingers versus wing backs, if something also the key Tracy had pointed out before the game was where this was on the podcast last week that this is where potentially Derry were going to get an advantage over Shelburne and Ollie. And like, it's a position you'd know quite well that, that those kind of positions on the flank, Um, your experience of playing against that sort of back three, back five model and just uh, like how you exploit those spaces. Like how would you have gone about it and how did Derry get that so right? Yeah. I think when, when you're playing against that, like, I think Rovers obviously play with the three and the two wing backs, but they get high up the band. A lot of the time they have a lot of possession, but I suppose Shells mightn't have as, as much possession and, and the wing backs can can drop back, can be deep, but it, it's a really difficult position to play that wing back. If you get it slightly wrong either way, like you're in trouble. Um and Derry did exploit it. Look, you have the quality of Duffy, everyone knows what he's like. Graydon um, showed his quality yesterday. I mean, it was a superb touch from from McElhenney's ball into his pat and then had his head up and picked McGonagall out for a brilliant finish. But I think, yeah, when you're playing against those wing-backs, you can exploit it and go, and there's the soft spots in their defence. If we can get get in around them and say, when you have the likes of a quarterback like McElhenney in there who can pull the strings, Dummigan as well. Um, and where I was sitting, I was watching patching as well. I was up high behind the goal. You could see his, he was just dropping into pockets May not have been getting the ball, but he was distracting and, and the defenders have to be wary of him because he's got quality on the ball too. So I thought they played it really well. Um, and as you're saying, like they're patient, patient, patient. Next thing, bang, ball's out wide. Um, the second goal, McShane as well. Duffy gets in behind him, does brilliant. And they really did exploit those spaces. Um, and like as Graham said, they weren't creating chance after chance, but they did what they had to do. And when they went 2-0 up, it was... I think Luke Bourne actually went down... Injured, I thought. I think it was tactical more so because all the shells players went over to to the sideline, and um, you're thinking oh, they'll change it up, and they did change it up. They switched far out and all, but they were just flat across the board. It was just one of those days. From I think, no matter what way he switched it up or whatever, they were just they just weren't at it. They just weren't at it, and, and Derry were were comfortable. And as Graham said, used their experience and, and moved the ball well and, and exploited those wide areas when when they could when they had to. Really, and so then they were they were comfortable. At, uh, once they got two and up, it was it was hard to see a way back for shells. You're looking at, you know, maybe the likes of Jack Moylan or Sean Boyd or someone doing something, but it just didn't seem to be coming. They just couldn't wrestle that momentum back from Derry, and, and it was a long day for them. And disappointed, as Damien, they they will be disappointed as a collective, and um, lots of young players there as well. But they'll they'll learn from it. They'll be back. They'll they'll be stronger, and you know they've they've lots of positives to look back on through the season. That's the thing, isn't it? With a young team, it gives them a taste for it, and to make sure that the next time they, they get a chance like that, that that they take it or they or they at least show the best versions of themselves. They've managed to stay up this year. It's been a successful season for Shelbourne and they are there on merit. People always say, oh, well, they deserve to be there. Well, it's up to you. It's up to other teams to knock them out and get there ahead of them. Like, that's the 
the joy of competition. And simple fact there, he deserved to be in the final because they, they won all the matches to get there. And I know he, like, we'd be disappointed that they probably didn't show the best versions of what they have been in, in, in some of the bigger games where they play with a lot of energy, a lot of aggression. Um, they, they drop back in and get in their shape quick and then they try and break from there too as well. So, um, like you said, from a Shelbourne point of view, it's been an excellent season for them um, considering they're just a newly promoted team. And, that's, and this is Damon's first year in, in charge and credit to Rory Higgins, he's 18 months in charge. So um, they've both done really well in their jobs, uh, considering they're only in, in its infancy. I, mean, I think yeah. Damien will learn, learn from that, won't he? As I say, it's like it was, well, on some of those days when you just, everyone is flat. Like, I suppose as a coach, you'd reflect and look at it. Was, was it the prep we did? Did he just get them to sit too deep or not press high enough? Was that part of the game plan or was it just, you know? They just were flat on the day. They didn't have, as you said, they're normally high energy, high tempo in your face, work really hard, but they were just just flat, just flat all around. Yeah. And you're looking for someone to kind of, or at least, you know, Jack Moylan or Sean Boyd or JJ Lunny's in there. You, he might do something. You're just You're just looking yeah. around and it just wasn't, there just wasn't that spark from anyone. And if one, if one went, then it wasn't that they, did, they didn't get much backup. And then, you need a collective aggression in your team that we're all going to go, like we're all going to go and be aggressive. We're all going to even make four or five fouls to disrupt the rhythm, yeah. but we're all going to do it. It was only one or two that done it. Yeah. it was never they never a, got the crowd behind yeah. them either. You know, it was all the dairy crowd. They never had that, yeah. as you say, even a tackle or something, or yeah. a, a chance that might have lifted the crowd for even for five, ten minutes and see if they can, you know, turn the table, turn the tide a bit, but unfortunately they weren't able to. Yeah, and from a Derry City point of view, Graham, I know it's been kind of well, you know, it's been mentioned many times on this podcast that this is sort of a sense that this is the beginning. It has to be a stepping stone. The example is Shamrock Rovers, Cork City before that, that the FAI Cup is sort of that uh, that first bit of silverware that gives you the confidence. So for them, yesterday was obviously huge, but there's going to be a huge step up now as well. There is a gap to Shamrock Rovers that does need to be bridged. Yeah, it's a 13-point gap, uh, considering what that's what Rovers finished ahead of them in the league in the end. And and for Derry to make that up, they have to improve their home form. And I know that like they've travelled well to Dublin this season and picked up big wins on the road, but they need to maybe and Derry was always a tough place to go. So it's it's interesting that they haven't probably got enough victories. They've got a lot of draws at home. But and Ollie knows this probably better than me. Winning games are expected to win. It becomes a habit. And and that's what Derry brought to that final yesterday. And it's something that they need to build on that. Like we need to go here and get result and maybe and I I I thought they were doing that the, the latter end of the season when they, they went to Richmond and got a one 0 win. I thought here we go, and then they drew a home to Shells and 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 to me I was like right that's a that's a big one where you would expected them to go and win that home game again, but it is a stepping stone and Rory Higgins considering he's eighteen months in the job, he's brought in he brought a lot of players back to the club that are from the city and that and know how much it means to play for the club. He's brought in lads from like Brian Marr, Brandon Kavanagh, who are travelled up from Dublin, that have bought into what he's doing. The likes of Anna Reynolds with his experience behind him as well, helping Rory is is great. Uh, but Rory, to walk away from an FAI job as well and go into your first role in your home club as manager and winning an FAI Cup, he, he couldn't have wished for a better start to his 18 months in charge, and he's been fantastic. And the brand of football they try and play as well is brilliant. To play Patchen and McElhenney in the same team in, in two midfielders, you wouldn't see like many 
managers doing that and being so expansive. But obviously with Diallo missing out, you probably felt he had to do it. But the two of them delivered, especially McElhenney. I thought he was fantastic on the day and his work rate, even helping back to get him beside Dunnigan was fantastic. So they're, um, they're a team on the up and, and what happens when you win silverware, it gives you a taste for it, but it gives you crumbs leave success and you can you can like take take that success and, and what you've learned with that and apply it to uh, league matches that you're expected to win as well. Yeah, and uh, for Derry City next season, they won't have a Northwest Derby in terms of the, the Derby against Finn Harps next season with... Uh, the relegation with their relegation uh, from the division, and they're going to be playing first division football next season. But uh, Ollie, without your uh, namesake, Ollie Horgan, though. Yeah, yeah, it's um, he's done an unbelievable job there. Um, incredible to, to keep them up and do what he does. And uh, I, I, I know the hours he's, he puts in when I was working, like he'd be on the phone, he'd be looking for players, and he travels around the country, and you know, he's got got his finger on the pulse and, and knows what was going on around the league and I say done, done an incredible job so it'll be tough tough shoes to fill um, to step in there and, and get them back up and like it's it's tough to come back straight back up after going down um, so it'll be a big rebuild there for whoever comes in um, but you know obviously with the, the plan the new stadium and stuff uh, up there and all it could be a good exciting project as well to, to get involved in um so yeah it'd be interesting to see who steps in but they say ollie's a legend up there and um, it's going to be big big shoes to fill whoever whoever does it yeah and in in the frame among the names is uh the former donegal um ga manager jim mcginnis graham um there will be other names of course as well but in terms of the type of shoes that need to fill what a, a great job done by ollie horgan over what is a nine-year span what direction do they need to uh sort of go towards uh, I, I know Kevin McHugh is building up their academy really well. Um, I think this year they probably signed a lot of lads from outside the league that didn't know the league. They lost a lot of lads who to Shelburne, the likes of Boyd and Coyle. Uh, Webster being injured was a big one because he understands the league. So did he go and try and get more local players in? Um, did he try and get more lads who are, understand what it, what it means to win in the, uh, how to win in, in the division? Uh, like I said, I, I thought he took it, but that was all he was like. That was the marker he was in. Um, as he said, he 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 found it hard to replace the lads he lost last season. Uh, in terms of Jim McGuinness going in, um, obviously he worked at Celtic in football. He, I'm not sure he, he he went to America then as well. What players does he know in the league? Can he galvanise the city the way or the town the way that um. That all he did, I thought he was brilliant at that. He knew what it meant to play for Finn Harps and he tried to implement that to his players. Did he go down the youth route where they, they start putting in their academy players that, like I said, have come through the academy under Kevin McHugh? Are they ready yet? Because I know it's only in, in its infancy too. So th there's a lot of different variants to look at. Um, I think they probably just need to reset next season. If they can get the facilities in the stadium up and running, it might be a case that they just consolidate and then look to, to plan when they come back up. Um, if you can plan when you come back to make sure you stay up, when that comes down to your academy being right and your facilities being right, and then you can build from there, there's no point. In... Again, you, you, you have to take what the game gives you. If you're on to be promoted, you take it because with that becomes more finances, more sponsorship, etc., etc. But if you're ready to come up and stay up, that's the big thing for Finn Harps and they need to improve all the facilities around them to make sure that when they do come up, 
that they're able to stay and build on that up there because it, it is a fantastic football town. Yeah, and off the pitch, there are a number of developments as well in regards to the status for professional footballers in the league. So senior full-time professionals in the League of Ireland aged 20 and over will now be entitled to a minimum wage of €430 Euro per week from the beginning of next season. Part-time players will receive a minimum wage of €130 Euro a week with payments starting at the beginning of pre-season on the 30th of November. And there's also changes that apply to teenage players as well. And it's a deal between the PFAI the FAI's National League Committee and club representatives. And Ollie, to you first, um, your your role previously with the PFA, just as the uh, player executive, first your reaction to that development and also what it would take in terms of negotiations from the PFAI to get a deal like that over the line? I think it, <clears throat> I think it's a hugely positive step. Um, big move forward. Like Graham is working with, with young players at Shamrock Rovers. And if you're trying to create a proper pathway, young players coming through, and they come out of the academy system or whatever and going into teams on 50, 70, 80 euro a week, you're going, like, that's that's not right. And like, so I think I think this move is a hugely positive step for everyone going forward. Look, there's a lot more stuff to be done, but um it's it would it would have taken a long time. Say so when I was working there, and um, we would have discussed it and talked about it and planned it internally to try and get everyone around the table and get get it on the agenda as such it would have been a huge amount of work in that um, I know that the PFA Ireland done a huge amount of work and the players Roberto Lopez Brendan Clark and Lee Stacey Andy Lyons were on it were on a, a committee as well um, and obviously doing your club visits and your your work on the ground getting around to all the players and um, obviously they would have mandated the PFA Ireland to, to go and do what they did um, and I think it's a hugely positive step and if we're trying to create a proper structure and proper industry here and um, i think that this is the way forward and this is the same for, for managers and coaches they spend a lot of money on getting qualifications getting badges and stuff and to come out the other end then to 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 what at times you're going this isn't right so like it looks like they're trying to push the game forward from the top end as well and um, down um, and look hopefully that there's more positive stuff to come but i think this this is a huge step and a huge hugely positive reaction from all the players around the league. Um, and look, I say, I'm, I'm sure there's more There's more in the pipeline. Um, Steve McGuinness won't be resting on his laurels thinking, oh, I've got this, that's great. Now he'll be looking for the next thing and the next thing to, to push things on um, for the players. Yeah, one of those things um, that Steve McGuinness did say is he sa- he wants to see a certain amount of professionals at every club and will put the accelerator on next year on that. Um, so, Graham, on the other side of it, when you're trying to create an industry as well, there is obviously the, the side of the clubs as well and yeah. what they will need also to be able to fund uh, some of this from from their own end. And that's going to be that the importance of income streams there as well. Yeah, and the, and and the importance of upping the prize money and stuff in terms of when you win, when you when you are successful, and you and you've again a lot of people chase the European because you wait for pay really well, and um when you get into these competitions, so it's more so that you get the funding through that, but the 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 money that you get for winning the league isn't high enough, and then that trickles down to when you finish fifth, you only earn a certain amount, et cetera, et cetera. So they need they need to improve the finances on that side of it as well. The FAI really need to start investing in facilities. And it's very hard for a team to invest in facilities and invest in a playing squad because you're still trying, you're trying to be successful on one hand and you're taking away from your playing squad to invest in facilities to give the best facilities for the players. So they need to work on, on that as well. You know, getting the players 
into a professional setup where you're at, you're at least able to earn a certain amount as a wage is important because you need to build that as Ollie said building an industry where you can write on your I'm a professional football and I get paid X amount is massive because we touched on it with all the players this year and some of the stuff we've done in interviews and you can't write down professional football you can't get a mortgage as a professional football in this country uh, you can't you know get finance on certain things because of that and so it does need to be recognised. But again, the big thing for me, Ireland played Scotland. Ireland won the Victory Shield in the 16s uh, last, about two weeks ago. There was a lot of players on, on in the group that I would have co- uh, that would have been at Rovers and we've coached. And there's a lot of players that we would have played against from other areas down in Cork and things like that. And they're a really good squad, really good team. And they beat Scotland 4-1 on the day. And I was talking to a fella over from Scotland and, and he's like, he's a really good Graham. Like that, they're, they're a really good group. You've got exceptional players. You have the best players on the pitch. Uh, and my worry is that from sixteen to eighteen, the Scotland players are going to go ahead of them because they're going to go in and train full time, and their lads aren't. And I touched on this before on this show. Them two years, the players in Scotland, their hours are going to jump from four, four hours, six hours to twelve, and their lads are going to stay on six for the next two seasons. And again their lads are going to improve more than their lads and at the moment their, their players in Ireland are as good as anyone around and, and we're not able to then really kick them on so to me I think the FEI really needs to start going right how do we invest in the facilities for these players that we can train them as much as every other kids around Europe Like, and, and Shane Robinson said to, something to me the other day talent doesn't discriminate where it's born but sometimes you, you could be born in the right place and, and you can get, you know, lucky with where you're born that you you land on a full-time football setup. And other times you could be really talented, but you have nowhere to nurture that talent and grow it. And to me, I think the government need to have a level of funding through the FAI to do this. I think the gambling thing, when you see horse racing and, and greyhound, that they take a certain amount of money off the gambling. I think, yeah, I think... Uh, Irish football should be getting a, a cut of that as well to build up the facilities and we've seen that even with the stadium at Marcus Field where you know you have 16 year olds that are winning a victory shield against the, all the nations around them and then a week later you have a stadium nearly falling down um, in Limerick and again the 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 the, the gap is too big like and and the, the minimum wage thing equates everything for players but we need to start equating facilities and, and opportunities for kids to be full-time footballers in this country from that age group as well. Yeah, you mentioned Markets Field there, so that was the uh, first That was division. a good segue, Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> that was, was a brilliant segue. Brilliant I'm, getting segue. Great. I'm really I'm getting good at these segues, you, 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 always, you always set me up for these. Um, <laughs> I'm way behind on the segues. Yeah, it's a, it's a proper... You need to start working yeah. on the segues, Alda. Yeah, yeah, it's a perfect Michael Duffy to Jamie McGonagall kind of situation here. <laughs> but um, just, uh, yeah, so you mentioned Markets Field. That was the first division playoff final um, between or Waterford and uh, Galway United last week. This week, uh, or last Friday, as it happened, UCD played the winner of that, which was Waterford, in the promotion relegation playoff, and Thomas Lonergan's goal proved to be the difference. But it was quite a dramatic game, especially towards the end, with Junior Caterna missing a penalty. So let's listen to the managers first, uh, UCD manager Andy Myler, and then Waterford counterpart Danny Searle. It was a great performance from your team tonight. They nullified Waterford, I think it's fair to say. 
Yeah, listen, Waterford have a lot of threats um, and some really good players. Obviously, the two boys, uh, uh, Patterson and Junior, uh, on the wings are really skillful players. And we set up to try and deal with it. Um, at times, I thought we were actually too conservative in how we defended because we actually invited them on a lot uh, and we didn't keep the ball well. But listen, it's about winning these games, you know. They're not, this, uh, there'll be no prizes here if we played lovely football here tonight or we're, you know. Um, and didn't get across the line, and we have. Um, so that's all. That's that's all that's you know matters really. You showed a big game mentality. Mm. How did you manage to get that out of a team that's so young? And as I look over my shoulder there, I see Tommy Lonergan, your goal scorer. He's been immense yeah. since he recovered from his ankle injury. Yeah. He's only 18. He summed that up well tonight. Yeah, listen, we have Alex Nolan and Tommy Lonergan, so two of our front three can still play under 19 football, you know. So, um, but they've been they've been phenomenal all year. Their attitude to the game uh, and their attitude to the professionalism, how to look after themselves. Um, is fantastic um, and they've bought into the other lads have been here a couple of years um, and their attitude uh, we have a group that has a phenomenal attitude to their football so, um, and that's what's kept us in the Premier Division but those lads have come in and added like Tommy adds a little bit of sparkle there with goals and stuff like that um, and he has a you know he has a really high ceiling and he's going places um, so uh, we're just delighted but from as we spoke about the, the group from, from 1 to 20, I think we've used, in terms of training, we're looking through today, training 40 players or something like that in terms of who you use, fellas rotating through your group and uh, training sessions and everything else like that. It takes a village to get it over the line, and it did, and uh, they're an important part of it. Danny Searle, Waterford manager. Um, heartbreak tonight. How are you feeling following the 1-0 loss to UCD in the promotion relegation playoff final? Uh, a little bit of what you just said. It's, it's hard to take because... We fully backed ourselves to win the game tonight and we set out to win the game tonight. And when you when you give them the opportunity to take the lead and give them something to hold on to, that, that gives you that little extra step. And they had that tonight and they, they put their bodies on the line all over the pitch. And so credit to them, congratulations to them. But we're hugely disappointed because we, we felt we were ready for, to be back in the Premier League. Is the really frustrating thing that you didn't play as well as you know that your team can tonight? Yeah, I, th I think, listen, we, we, we dominated the game. I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. Was we as effective in the final third as what we normally are? No. And uh, that's huge, that huge, uh, hugely down to um, our decision-making at times. And you could see that the event got, got to us and you could see that there was times when, when I didn't recognise some of the things we were doing. And that's what I said to them at half-time. I said to them, look, I, I, I don't recognise you. Relax, be you, be be what we're about. And I thought the second half was miles better, albeit that we didn't work the keeper anywhere near enough. How hard will it be to climb the mountain again? I'm not sure if you're staying on, I'm not sure of your situation, but you came really, really close and just fell short. It suggests that you're there or thereabouts, but it's it's a long way back, isn't it? Yeah, look, that, that's, that's the playoffs for you. You, you. you put yourself, the euphoria of being in it and making a final is, is amazing. But you know you're one one result away from actually feeling utter deflation, and people will say, "Oh, it's not worth it." You, you ended up going out and getting beat. Well, for us it is because this this team's grown a lot, and we've we've got a, fun, a, founda a fantastic foundation of players. We've got a bright future, and it doesn't feel like that right now. And obviously, we we almost using the word mourning our, our, our loss. But you know what? We'll pick ourselves up. We have to dust ourselves off. We learn from our mistakes, and we'll go again. Do you want to be part of Waterford's future? 100%. This is it's a fantastic club. That it's got amazing people here. Um, they've welcomed me with open arms, which is which is all you can ask for. And you know what? I see I see 
I see the fundamentals in place to be a really successful place to, do, to, to apply my trade and, and, and hopefully I look forward to, to a future with the club. All right, so contrasting emotions there. The last voice you heard there, of course, Waterford manager Danny Searle and then before that, Andy Myler, the UCD manager who has kept the students in the Premier Division for next season, Waterford having to uh, apply another season in the uh, First Division in the hope of trying to get back up to the to the top flight. Uh, Ollie, just on that 1-0 win uh, for UCD, A, the, the way they managed that game was brilliant, but also the way Andy Myler has managed that season where I think everybody would have uh, would have expected UCD to go down. You know, it, it's just been, it, it's been well worked from him and from his very, well, what is always a young squad at UCD anyway. Yeah, ah, fantastic job Andy's done. Um, and I think what kind of summed it up is the win up in Finn Harps. I think you're saying rightly so at the start of the season, everyone had wrote, UCD off going they'll go down perhaps to be down there fighting with them but I suppose from a few games before you're looking at that game that was going to be the crucial one and most people are going to see if it came to a battle up in Finn Harps and all Finn Harps will just have that little bit of know-how and that bit extra and will come through and I, th I thought they were terrific in that game and again the, the other noise I just thought it was a really mature performance from them from such an inexperienced team that Todd at the back was excellent and Keeney but Tommy Lonergan up front, he, he held the ball up. Obviously, he got his goal. There was a few times in the second half, then he, he drew fouls. He knew what he was doing, and he was able to take the pressure off them. Um, Waterford overall will, will be disappointed with the performance. Um, as Danny said, second half, they were better. But without really cutting them open, um, I think they'll be disappointed. Um, start of the second half, Junior looked like, oh, he could do something. Obviously, Patterson on the other wing is, is always dangerous, but... They got so far without, you know, going that extra bit um, and being able to, to cut them open. But I, I thought UCD managed the game really well. They would have been devastated if Waterford had that score, scored that penalty, which was which was never a penalty. Um, but I think that just summed Waterford's night up with Junior blazing it over the bar. But yeah, huge kudos to, to Andy and, and his and his team and, and the way they've they've come through the, the whole season, not just the, the end of it. Yeah, and in regards to Waterford, uh, just something Conan Byrne said on the commentary, Oshin Langan, who was the, the voice speaking to both of those managers there, um, he, he talked about it also being a missed opportunity for Waterford, uh, Graham, but also if we're talking about performance, there seemed to be too many players trying to be heroes was what Conan Byrne was saying on, on the night. I think if Waterford had a centre-forward that Junior and, and uh, Phoenix Patterson could play off and go into it and then time their runs off, um, they might have been a different story. Um. But again, it's doing what's right for your team and not what's right for yourself. And sometimes making that sacrifice to make the right decision in, in a vital game is massive. And like I think what Ali said is right. UCD played for each other and showed a maturity about them that probably belies their years uh, for such a young team. The likes of Sean Brennan, who's normally would, would class himself as a footballer, likes to ground the ball, basically ran around and got second balls and got to, got to the pitch of the ball, played simply when he could, turned them when he could as well. The lads defended manfully at the back. So they were willing to do whatever they needed to do to make sure UCD stayed in the division. And if it meant not standing out from a personal point of view, but doing your job for the team, that's what it's all about. Um, and I was I, I, I thought that UCD would plateau a little bit and I, I was sort of going, when the weather gets bad and it becomes a bit of a slog people going up to Finn Harps are going to find it really tough and that's when Finn Harps will get their points in the last stage of the season and they just never did and in fairness to UCD they showed a different side to them 
because they've been renowned for playing good football and, and playing a brand of football that allows their, their young players to develop. But they showed that they're willing to dig in and fight and scrap for each other. And Lonigan, I remember seeing Lonigan as a 13-year-old and he was a bull of a young fella. He, he, back, he backed into people, he, he barreled them, he, he buffed them away. And I thought, some size, and then you thought, he might lose that as the law levels out, but he's kept it. He's kept that aggression in his game. And it's great to see because you, now you're looking going, no, he's aggressive as a 13-year-old. He's going to be more aggressive as an 18-year-old. And he has. He's done really well considering the players that they've lost as well. UCD this season, uh, Whelan and the other uh, boy got a cruise shit, did he? So they've been, they've been lost probably two of their best players in the summer. And that was going to be a, a big loss for them, but they've managed to, to get through it. And the likes of uh, Evan Caffrey in midfield and Dylan Duffy as well have come in and, and been excellent for them too. So yeah, Tom, Tommy Lonergan was uh, was brilliant. 12 goals in all competitions for them and played a massively crucial role in keeping them up. But uh, let's turn our attentions to international football. The Republic of Ireland playing a couple of friendlies uh, this week. First, Norway, um, which is going to be live on RT2 and the RT player on uh, at 7pm on Thursday, on Thursday evening. And uh, that's at the Aviva Stadium. And then they're away in Malta on Sunday, which is also going to be live on television and the RT player. And the squad was announced last week and the most notable inclusions were for Will Smallbone and Evan Ferguson promoted from the under-21s. Also, Jamie McGrath, after some uh, a pickup in form from Dundee United also uh, has been recalled. Let's listen to Stephen Kenny. He was speaking to David Kelly uh, last week just on small Smallbone Ferguson and then why Connor Coventry wasn't called up and also uh, the situation with the goalkeepers, including... Kelleher's performance in the Carabao Cup last week in which he uh, saved three penalties. Well, Will is a creative passer. He's, you know, been on loan. Obviously, he's come back from a cruciate injury for one so young, which is shows great fortitude. And he's gone and played with Stoke this season. And he's a creative passer, played well with the under-21 team. So he's in. He, he's, he's improving all the time. And uh, he's having a good season with Stoke, so he's in a merit. And Evan, obviously... Uh, talent and uh, a great future. Yeah, Evan um, obviously is very young and uh, we, he's been very good at all the international age groups. Uh, we're excited by Evan. He still has a lot to do and um, we have some injuries in the forward areas so we, we've picked him in the squad and um, we look forward to, to using him. Was Connor Carpentry close? Yeah, Connor has uh, had a, a good, you know, played well in the Europa Conference games for West Ham and played an hour last night in the Caribou Cup. So Connor, Connor's on standby. In terms of your goalkeepers, we saw Creevey last night again, uh, Liverpool's hero, three penalty saves at Anfield. Um, you're obviously well stocked for the goalkeepers. <laughs> How do you see that, that position now, and, and what, what are you going to be doing for the goalkeeper situation for these two games? Yeah, I think Max O'Leary has been unlucky not to be selected. He's playing very well for Bristol City at the moment. Mark Travers has got back in the team at Bournemouth. Gavin Bazoon has been playing in the Premier League from the start of the season with, with Southampton, of course. And uh, Quivian has been out injured. That's his first game since the summer. So it's a good way to come back and <laughs> save penalties in the way that he did. So it's, you know, it's, it's healthy. Every time Quivian seems to play for Liverpool, he seems to be the star of the, of, of, of the match. And now, as you said, he has been injured, but that was his first game for Liverpool since February, since the Carabao Cup final. So, you know, Jurgen Klopp keeps calling him the world's best number two, but... I mean, from, from you speaking to Cleveland, is he frustrated at his, at his sort of 
situation? Yeah, well, I think the thing about Quivian, he's not he's not young anymore. Uh, you know, he's not too young. He's nearly twenty four. So, um, but it's great that he came back, and he's great great environment at Liverpool, of course. And um, you know, he's playing training with great players every day, and the more games he plays, you think it would be more beneficial for him. So it was important to play last night, and you know, it's uh, it's good to see him come back after an injury and do so well. In terms of these two games, obviously, you know, the aim is to win them, but is there anything else uh, specifically you're hoping from these two matches? <clears throat> Listen, Norway's a, tr Norway's a great game. You know, we, it'll be the biggest selling friend friendly. Someone said it's the biggest selling friendly in the world this week because 45,000 sold already before we even go into this week. And all of the games outside of the World Cup games, do you know what I mean? This will be the biggest selling sell friendly. All of the games, the games against Scotland home and away, Portugal home and away, Ukraine away, Belgium friendly at home, they've all been brilliant games. I think people realise that. All been really, uh, you know, evenly contested uh, games and we're just looking to improve. Again, there's areas we can improve and we want to continue to improve and that's what we're trying to do. All right, that's Republic of Ireland manager Stephen Kenny just ahead of these friendlies against Norway and Malta. Now for Norway, there won't be uh, won't be any Erling Haaland playing so the, whoever's playing in defence will be spared that <laughs> that onslaught. But um, Ollie, just from the from the Irish point of view in terms of the, the notable inclusions in the squad, so Will Smallbone and Evan Ferguson. Ferguson, uh, just to note as well, in terms of first team football for Brian and hasn't had too many opportunities this season, but notably um, has scored five goals and six in Premier League two, so the under twenty threes, and also has featured in the uh, in the Carabao Cup as well. So uh, his is his is very notable, and he is still extremely young. Yeah, yeah, it's oh, look, it's a massive thing for him to be involved in the squad. It'll be interesting to see if he does get any game time or whether Stephen is just going to use it, you know, to kind of integrate him into the into the setup, get him around the lads. Um, as you say, very little first team experience at Brighton. Done, done well with the 21s, obviously. Um, and look, everyone's, uh, Stephen is well aware of his qualities and, and what he can do. And I suppose at that end of the pitch, like that, that's where we always struggle historically to, to get fellas who can who can do something at that end of the pitch. So um, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure Stephen will will manage him properly um, and say uh, but it'll be interesting to see if he does get some game time maybe even in the in the second game against Malta and um, to throw him in I'm sure you know normally after the first game as well there's some injuries and pullouts and stuff so it'll be interesting to see how it pans yeah. out but looks huge for him and, and his family and everything I bumped into I bumped into his dad this morning grabbing a coffee oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like all right Barry and because uh, I, I remember I was on this show talking about uh the old four cup final and I remembered something around Evan and someone had a go at me going ah he wasn't even born he was born the Saturday he was born the Saturday before we played on the Sunday and Barry was suspended and I said to Barry this morning and he goes ah oh, I still get stick about that because I just said listen I have to go and ran off he was suspended for the old four cup final but he was like listen I have to go and Evan was only a day old he says his <laughs> wife Sarah still gives him stick and I said did he delighted for Evan and he goes yeah he said uh he texted him at nine o'clock that morning and said, oh, by the way, I'm in the squad. And uh, Barry was like, well, thanks for telling me. He said, I've had a busy day. <laughs> he's like, so yeah. I think he's quite relaxed about, I think his demeanour is quite relaxed. And if you knew Barry, Barry was similar. Like, um, 
So it's probably, it's probably a good thing is he's here for him yeah. that if he just takes it and he's destroyed and just goes in and, and does Brilliant. his stuff. I was laughing yeah. at it, I think, and it's a great story. Like, and uh, like Barry was going, Yeah, like I was thinking, What are you doing all day? You couldn't text me that, you know. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it was interesting, and but yeah, delighted for him. Like, like again, saw him play as a kid and thought, Yeah, boy, has a chance, like, and then you know, with his background and the fact that Barry involved in football, you know, he's going to be. Um, guided the right way and make the right decisions and, and and they've done that and every step of the way has been a step up and every time he's been asked to step up he has and like that this won't phase him it's it's an exciting time for like all he said him and his family um, but yeah the it's interesting for, when you look at Troy Parrott when he was kind of yeah. at age everyone was talking about him as well being the next the next thing and you know it can go either way it's, it's, it's difficult and now Troy is back, coming back and show him what, what he can do. So, but as you said, I think they've managed. And Brighton seems to be a, a good, really good club and a good setup. And there, and they, they look after him and, and manage him as well. And um, you know, when he's ready, um, he'll he'll make that breakthrough. Yeah, and Will Smallbone's call probably wasn't a massive surprise, given he was probably the standout player for the twenty ones. Were you surprised, Graham, that maybe Connor Coventry didn't get a call up this time? He has been sort of on the fringes of the first team squad for West Ham and has appeared in some of the cup competitions and had and obviously captained the twenty ones as well and had been an important cog there. Yeah, maybe because he's been in and around the first team squad in the Premiership. You'd like to think that you'd you get these lads in as much as you can, even to have them around the squad, like Ollie said about. Evan to, to to get used to how they do things and amalgamate them into into a a toy squad. Um, like you said, he's played at a high level. He's played for West Ham in the group stages too. So you'd expect that they bring him in. I wasn't surprised to see William Small, uh, Smallbone in as well. He's playing a lot of games for Stoke, obviously on loan, but he was really he, he performed really well for the twenty ones. But as did Coven, uh, Connor Coventry, and with with the agent with the lads, maybe Horahan and. And Henrik maybe um, getting a little bit older. That's time to blood the younger lads in, and no better way than to do it in the friendlies. And listen, you never know what happens in the Norway game. And then going into Malta, he might get called in if he's on standby to go and play over in Malta, and hopefully he does. And the more you get these young lads in, and the earlier you get them in, the more used to the more used to it, and the more experience they gain around international setups. Yeah, and sticking to the international team, of course, the World Cup kicks off this Sunday with the opening game between the host nation, Qatar, and Ecuador. And Ecuador, one of the four South American teams that are going to be at the tournament and get a bit of an insight on those South American teams. I was speaking to Tim Vickery, who many people will know as a contributor and writer and broadcaster for the likes of World Soccer, ESPN, and also had a long-time column in the BBC. So he's he kind of gave me an insight into Brazil, Argentina, Ecuador, and Europe. Uruguay. So here's that interview. All right, Raf Jallo here from the RT Soccer Podcast and delighted to be joined by Tim Vickery, longtime contributor to the likes of ESPN, BBC, World Soccer and many more over the years with uh, a huge amount of expertise on South American football. And Tim, look, it's a pleasure to be uh, joined by you. And uh, I suppose first off, we want to maybe um, trash a few little myths here. There's an idea here in Europe that the this is the time for the South American teams. And before we delve into the, those teams in detail, is that something that tallies with you? I think it is. Yes. I mean, it, this is a, a very difficult World Cup to predict before the event, um, partly because of the timing uh, and also partly because as a, as a result of the Nations League and the pandemic, there's been almost no national team football between Europe and South America since the last World Cup, 
And Argentina did thrash the European champions at Wembley recently, but Italy aren't going to be in the World Cup. They, they got a 2-2 draw with Germany three years ago. And other than that, there was one game against Estonia. For Brazil, there was one trip to the Czech Republic three years ago. They've been desperate to fix up friendlies against European opposition. They just can't do it. So uh, we're going to find out the relative weight of the powers from football's two traditional continents during the course of the tournament, which I think adds an added kind of little bit of mystery, a bit like the World Cups of our youth, you know, before everyone knew everyone. But certainly going into it, Brazil and Argentina are the former horses. Yeah, and the first team we're going to see actually is going to be Ecuador playing the host nation on yeah. the opening day on the 20th of November, uh, which is going to be live on RT2 and the RT player. Um, looking at Ecuador, probably the least well-known in terms of audiences here, but their defensive yeah. record in recent times has been excellent. They probably don't score a lot of goals. So how do you expect them to set up in this group where they do have a realistic shot of getting out of it? They do, yeah. The goals have dried up recently, uh, and that that is a problem. You know, as you said, they're five consecutive clean sheets, but only two goals in the, in those those five games. What are they? They're a young side. And Ecuador were under twenty champions of South America in twenty nineteen, the last time that we had a an under twenty championship, and they were third in the world in the, in that, that year's under twenty World Cup. There's one club in Ecuador, a little club on the outskirts of Quito called Independiente del Valle which has become an absolute reference in terms of youth production. Uh, and around half the Ecuador squad have had some contact with that club on the way up. Um, at the start of qualification, no one in Ecuador thought they would qualify. They'd had a really bad three-year run, uh, massive internal problems. They chewed up coaches. And with around a month to go, before qualification, they appointed a low-profile coach from Argentina, Gustavo Alfaro, with no previous connection to Ecuadorian football. This can't possibly work, can it? Oh, yes, it can. He's been an excellent fit. He's a counter-attacking coach who's done better with smaller teams than with bigger teams. Uh, and uh, that, that's proved a good fit for Ecuador, who are a counter-attacking side. But also Alfaro has been, has been very, very willing to ride this wave, this wave of youth. If you're good enough, you're old enough, and in you go. And the symbol of the side is the now Brighton midfielder, Moses Caicedo, who's ripping up the Premier League this year. Um, this is when he was still at, still the, the qualifier started when he was still in Ecuador with Independiente del Valle, 19 years old. In you go, son. You're the main man in midfield. Get on with it. Uh, and Caicedo, I think, is, is, is the symbol of the side in a number of ways. Firstly, his youth. It's a very, very young side. Secondly, his physicality. This Ecuadorian side, they are physically imposing and they're quick as well. Yes, there are problems in a number of areas and a big worry is where the goals are going to come from. But providing they can cope with the emotional side of this uh, and especially playing that opening game against Qatar, the entire planet is going to be watching them. They've never been in that situation before. We don't know how they're going to react to, uh, to being in, in a global spotlight. If they can deal with that emotionally, then they're not going to win it. Quarterfinals, absolute tops, I would have thought. But I, I know the Brazil coaching staff, and they're just full of admiration for them. They think this, this Ecuador side could be one of the shock sides in, in the World Cup. 
Yeah, and a team with a lot more veterans then is Uruguay all the way in Group H and in a very balanced group with Portugal yeah. and Ghana and South Korea. And of course, this is coming to the, towards the end of the Luis Suarez, Edinson Cavani generation. But there were two players I wanted to ask you about. So Federico Valverde has has sprung into probably one of the best midfielders in the world right now for Real Madrid, scored a great goal in the Clasico. And then, of course, at Liverpool, Darwin Nunes is somebody we've been looking at very closely. So first on Valverde, how are Uruguay set up to get the best out of him? And then secondly, in terms of Darwin Nunez's impact, is he, how influential is he within the team? Or is he a player that's actually not necessarily going to start? These are, these are good questions. And uh, I can't really isolate them. Um, Uruguay are one of the most fascinating sides going into the World Cup. From one point of view, because that group is so well balanced, anything could happen in, in, in that group. Um, you mentioned the veterans. The coach there, relatively new coach, Diego Alonso, he has some big decisions to make. And at the moment, with 10 days to go before the kickoff, we don't know what his side's going to be. Now, he, he, he goes big on preparation, Alonso, and it's entirely possible that he'll go, with, he'll go for a horses-for-courses approach and a different team and a different setup for every game. Now, that's entirely possible. But he's got some huge decisions to make, and those decisions are about the personnel and the shape of the side, and the two things are, are related. Valverde missed the last World Cup because he wasn't fully fit, desperate to make up for it this, this, this time, and he has become the most important player in the side. He's got seven lungs, oh, and he's, he's everywhere and he does everything. So you want to benefit him. Now, Uruguay, I think, are better when they have three in the central midfield because it frees him. You have uh, Vecino to hold, Bentancor to link, and Valverde to go and be Valverde. If you play three in the central midfield, it is very, very hard to play two up front. You know, with Suarez and Cavani over recent years, they kind of settled on 4-4-2. I think if you're going to make Valverde the king of the hill, that becomes difficult. So it's hard to play two up front unless you play three at the back. And three at the back is a possibility. Uh, and that would be the best way to protect another of the veterans you didn't mention, Diego Godin, who's the captain and a team leader, but he's passed his best and he's had real injury problems. He's only just come back. So he's Godin in the team. If so, do you go with a back three? If so, then you can have two up front. But if you play a back four and the three central midfield, it's hard to play two up front. If you play one up front, who's it going to be? It's not going to be Cavani. It's going to be Suarez. Or is it going to be Darwin Nunez? And that's a huge decision. And Suarez is the all-time top goal scorer. You know, he's, uh, he has been always there. You know, he's always been their main man. Nunez hasn't done so much for them yet. He's the coming man. Now, you could play Nunez wide, coming in from wide on the left. Uruguay had a look at that at the end of September, and he didn't look particularly good there, although he's, he's, he's have, had some practice there with Liverpool with the injury to, to Luis Diaz. Um, so all of these, these are huge decisions. And that's what the coach gets paid for, to take these decisions. If Uruguay get the balance right, then look out. 
No one's going to relish facing them. No one's going to relish facing that midfield. Uh, and remember, statistically, in two of the last three World Cups, Uruguay was South America's best side. If they get the balance right, they are capable of, of making real progress. And their pre-tournament ambition is to win this thing. They're not going there to take part. They're going there to win it. But if they get the balance wrong, they're going out in the first round because it's a group with, with little margin for error. So Uruguay, I think, are absolutely fascinating. And you cannot separate the shape of the side from the role that the veterans uh, are going to play. And after the, after the last one, where they reached the, the quarters, um, the coach, Oscar Washington Tabardes, he stayed on. Old health problems, but he couldn't resist it. He couldn't resist staying on because he knew four years down the line that he would still have the old guard, Godin, Suarez, Cavani. There's a couple of others there as well. Uh, and he knew that those midfielders would be coming into their prime. And the best thing about Uruguay over the last 15 years has been their under-20 under work. It's been a production line of talent. So, all right, let's see all of those together. But during qualification, he was never quite able to get the balance right. That's one of the reasons that Uruguay struggled so much. The other reason was injuries. And injuries is still a problem. Who, who there is fit? Is Godin fit? Araujo of Barcelona, a vital defender. They're going to wait for the last moment for him. Is he fit? So they've got to wait on the fitness of, of, of some of these players as well. So really, that coach, is, he, he's, he's going to be earning his money because he, he's got to take big decisions knowing that the margin for error in such a competitive group is so small. Yeah, and of course, there, there's a potential collision course with Brazil in the last 16, depending yes. on how both those groups go. And uh, you've spent a little bit of time, I believe, recently with Tiche, the uh, the yeah. Brazilian the Brazilian manager who's actually been there for six years. And I guess one of their assets is that six-year spell. They've had yeah. a, a level of stability that perhaps uh, they haven't been able to avail of in previous times. Yeah, no doubt about it. When the last squad um, four years ago, that was 20, a squad of 23, and there were a few there that you knew had never really been part of the process and were just there to make up the numbers. This time with 26, it was hard to leave players out. They've got options. They've got little, they've got three kind of formations they can play, just a slight tweak here and a slight tweak there. The man who makes that possible is, is Lucas Paquetara of West Ham, because in those three formations, he's the one that they move. And he can cover four functions if, if, if you really need it from him. Um, but it's, it's little variations within an overall idea of play. Um, and uh, that overall idea of play, play includes pressing the opposition more than any Brazilian side has ever, has ever pressed before. Um, and just in the last year and a half, the explosion of this new generation of, of, of attacking talent, taking some of the pressure off, off Neymar, uh, coupled with... Uh, a group of goalkeepers and, and some centre-backs to die for, you know, they're going to take some stopping. They weren't yeah. far off four years ago, but they're, they're, they're further down the line and they're better now. Yeah, and what what will the composition of the forward line be? Because uh, just looking at the squad that they named, Gabriel Jesus appears to be the only sort of almost natural number nine within the squad. But I understand no, Richard, Richard Richardson Richardson looks nine. like it, yeah. yeah. Richarlison is the nine. And if they're chasing the game, then... Um, and the game's been played in the opposing penalty area, then Pedro Flamengo is a nine who doesn't do anything else. He's, he's a penalty area player. Um, a few months ago, it looked like they weren't going to play a centre-forward. The idea then was, and Hafinha came into the side probably better than anyone I can ever remember, just instantly looking at home on the right wing. 
Vinicius Jr. exploding on the left wing as a global star, and then Neymar as a false nine, linking up with Lucas Paqueta, the most attacking of your, of your midfield trio. So that looked like it was how it was going to be. Uh, I think they decided that on uh, the change in June with the June friendlies, when well, Richarlison has got seven goals in the last six, and uh, Richarlison is he's, he's like a racehorse with blinkers, and he doesn't do a lot else apart from think about scoring goals. But they've got people to set up the play. What they wanted was penalty error presence, and I think they, they, they decided in the end, we're better with Richarlison and penalty area presence. So how do you fit him in? There are two ways. One way, you drop one of the wingers. And it's a big, this is a big call, but that would be Vinicius Jr. And then Paqueta becomes a kind of withdrawn left winger. So your front three there, you've got, still got Neymar floating. Uh, Hafina wide right, Richarlison centre forward, Paqueta as a, as, a, as a withdrawn left winger. The ultra attacking option, and this is a debate going on inside the, the Brazilian coaching staff, is to keep Vinny, to keep the two wingers, to keep Richarlison, to keep Neymar and play Paquita instead of Fred as the second man in midfield. Now, that, that is ultra attacking. You can't do that if you're going to play Daniel Alves. They, they recognise that. That's only possible if Danilo plays at right back, which is likely anyway. Um, but that, that's a formation that they can, they can either start with against weaker opponents or opponents who'll give them more space, or they can switch to during during the, 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 the course of the games. So of those three, the one that is now less likely is the one without Richarlison. You know, he's, he's won his place with seven goals in the last six. Yeah, it seems to be a far cry from the Brazil teams I was used to, where you had the two destructive uh, midfielders, a sort of yeah. hold. Well, I suppose destructive or holder midfielders, and then you have the 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 flying fullback. So, we, as you mentioned, Danilo, um, that seems there seems to be an evolution there in terms of them maybe being a little bit more restricted, I guess, in their movement. The fullbacks, totally, totally. That's why they can still pick Daniel Alves. They don't want the wingers, the auxiliary wingers. You know, your Cafu and your Roberto Carlos. They've got genuine wingers to do that. So the line is, you know, we want Man City fullbacks, not Liverpool fullbacks. Uh, it, it's it's a it's a guy it's a, a role now that re- requires more brain power than lung power. Hence the fact that Daniel Alves they they think is is still capable of playing that role. And it, it's been an awkward transition this for Brazilian fullbacks, and that's one of the reasons why the cupboard's quite bare. You know, they're 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 not as strong in that position because there's that confusion about what what the role of the fullback is. Yeah, and uh, also the fact in the last uh, the last four or so World Cups, they they've always they've always uh, any any knockout game they've won has always been against a non-European team, which is quite interesting. Yeah. Every exit has been to a European elite side, so Belgium the last time, Germany before that, very, very famously, um, Netherlands before that, and then also to France in the 06 World Cup. Is that a concern among fans in Brazil and also, I suppose, the experts that are keeping an eye on it, uh, that when they do run into one of the stronger European teams in the knockout stage, that perhaps they're still not ready? Well, that, that's where the bar is, has been set. Yes. I mean, that's uh, and the, the statistics talk for them, talk, speak for themselves. And the worrying fact is, if you add up the population of all of those four countries who've eliminated Brazil, it doesn't equal Brazil. No. Um, and as we've been saying, it's, they haven't played European opposition. They haven't been able to, to play European opposition. So we don't know. We're going to find out. Uh, and this is, and I see Brazil as justified favourites. But 
there are there are two causes for concern i think one is the emotional balance of the side when things go badly and in the build-up things have been going too well you don't win the world cup in easy games you know you, you win it in the difficult games how will they cope with scoreboard pressure and the other is when they come up against teams who are good enough to pass their way and beat the press which it hasn't happened to them they've trained for this eventuality but training is one thing and and, and the, the game is another so uh we don't know we, we, we're gonna have to wait for the world cup to find out yeah and something i always used to read in your columns over the best part of the last 20 years in the bbc you'd often talk about the state championships in brazil and just the structure and it was a, it was a recurring theme in terms of uh the need to evolve the game in brazil and i just wonder from since the um since the defeat the 7-1 defeat to germany how much soul searching has there been um about the brazilian game and then how much has actually been put into effect to actually um you know go straight down to the bottom of the structures and actually form um, I suppose the the domestic competitions in a way that is conducive to a bringing players through, but also just improving the system. No, I'm, change happens very slowly in Brazil, and it, it's hard to think of of the common good. Uh, I th there there are big moves towards the clubs setting up their own league, on kind of Premier League uh, style fashion, but one of the big problems is that the richest state, São Paulo. The clubs they want to keep their Sao Paulo State Championship. It's the only one that makes sense. It's the only one with a with a strength in depth that that means it's it's not a complete waste of time. So they want to keep it because they see that as giving themselves an advantage over clubs from all the other states. So uh, in in the business of setting up this league, this this fundamental issue of the calendar is just being kicked down the road. You know, we'll we'll try and sort that one out later. Um, there is more money in the big. Brazilian clubs, meaning that they can assemble better teams and keep them together because Europe no longer wants the best players in, in the Brazilian championship. It wants the best promises. So, uh, uh, and the model is sell your promises to Europe at 18, 19, 20 and use it to invest in players who are either coming back from Europe at the end of their careers or they've gone to Europe and it hasn't worked for whatever reason and, and, and you bring them back. Um, and even so, even though the quality of the best sides in Brazil have gone up, it has very little to do with the national team because the domestic game is, is, main, is based around players who are not considered good enough or good enough anymore for elite level. So only three of the squads are domestically based. One is the third goalkeeper. Another is a is a 33-year-old midfielder who has never played at the elite level. Even he doesn't know if he can do it. And, and the other is this centre-forward, Pedro, who is interesting. He's not quick. He had four games with Fiorentina before they, they, they gave up on him. Um, but he, he, may be well, well, he may well be worth another opportunity at top level. So it's a completely different thing now, the domestic Brazilian game from national team football and increasingly brazilian players are developing abroad no martinelli uh bremer people here don't know him hafinha when hafinha got into the side the football public here didn't know who he was and that that that's becoming increasingly common because that the players leave when they're 18 they build their careers abroad
Yeah, and similarly, globalization and, and within football has obviously hit Argentina over the the last few yeah. decades as well. Um, as you said, there the the opportunity to play elite European teams hasn't really happened for Brazil or Argentina, but they did have that one win over Italy in the finalissima. How much do you read into that performance? I mean, the Italy were the are well are the reigning European champions, but as we know, they're uh, very the most notable absentee at this uh, upcoming World Cup. Well, it, it turned out to be a massacre and it was a hard fought game for a while. And Argentina did what this Argentina team are capable of, which is passing the legs off the opposition. Um, they, they had to fight for the right to play. But once they won that right, if they hadn't been so concerned with getting Messi on the score sheet, once the game was won, it could have been seven. You know, it just turned out, it turned into a rout, which was a huge morale booster. There is a concern in Argentina that this... 35-game unbeaten run. Italy had a long unbeaten run. They're not at the World Cup. Algeria had a long unbeaten run. They're not at the World Cup. There's this fear that things might go wrong just when, uh, when, when it's most important. But no, confidence was, was boosted massively by, by not just the scoreline against Italy, but by the manner of the scoreline. It was, it was a real test that the team passed. It's been a remarkable story, I think, Argentina, because... Uh, you thought on the last World Cup they were they were just an absolute shambles with the oldest squad in the tournament, and you, you so you wonder then is Messi going to bother anymore? Why is he going to bother playing with this rubbish? Uh, what are they going to do about the coach? Well, they, they sacked him. They brought in Scaloni for one reason and one reason alone because he's cheap. You know, had no no senior previous coaching experience, uh, and it's turned out to be fantastic. Um, Messi has a lot to do with that. Messi over the last four years, uh, has it's, it's been clear that for the first time, the Argentine, Argentina national side is his number one priority. And he's been different uh, in his behaviour. He's, he's been less withdrawn and much more vocal. Uh, and he's formed a team around him and he's part of that team. And as a collective unit, the loss of Lo Celso is a severe blow. It's a big blow because the heart of the team is the midfield trio. Paredes plays the first ball out with quality. DePaul gives them thrust. And Lo Celso, lovely little subtle passes, bringing Messi into the game close to the opposition goal. Um, they've got a sweet thing going, Lo Celso and Messi. So losing him, they can replace him with good players. But that specific relationship, they can't replace. So that, that's something of, of a concern. Um, but the, the team on, on fire are wonderful to watch. They're, they're, they're patient possession game. I meant my big worry for them would be um, the defensive stats are, are excellent. You know, they've conceded two in the last 14 games. Sometimes that's been at full stretch and uh, they're going to have to, they're going to be at full stretch defending in the knockout stage of the World Cup. And I would, the reason that I would put Brazil ahead of Argentina is that I would much rather have Brazil's defensive unit than Argentina's. Yeah, for sure. Obviously, they met in the Copa America final uh, last yeah. year, which, of course, uh, took uh, for, for Messi, obviously, was important to win that first uh, full kind of major tournament. Uh, you mentioned how kind of happy he is behind the scenes. And I was just thinking about the coaching staff. So Scaloni, as you said, wasn't uh, well, obviously, he had played for Argentina himself uh, previously, mm -hmm. but it was interesting just looking at who's on the coaching staff. Pablo Aymar, who is somebody Messi admired. There's Walter yeah. Samuel and yeah. Roberto Ayala, who were players I remember from, I think even in the same World Cup, Messi played in in 06 when he made his debut. Mm -hmm. How important are that trio as well to what Scaloni has built there tactically and also um, in terms of the, the environment that they have uh, created within the camp? 
well, it's obviously working, isn't it? And the, the, the figures speak for, for themselves. Um, I, I, I'm not close enough to them to know exactly how it's working behind the scenes, exactly who is, who is doing what. But I think it's all helped them enormously that Messi is so on board because it could have gone wrong. You know, Scaloni, when he took over, it was all rapid transitions and that's the way we're going to play. And it lasted one game. The, the, the first game, his first competitive game, Copa America 2019, um, when they tried to do that and they were just picked off by Colombia and lost and lost badly. Uh, Di Maria, utterly blameless in that game, but he carried the can and he got dropped. He's back in now, subsequently back in. And, and, and Di Maria is such an important player for, for them that we don't speak about enough. And Di Maria loves it that way, I think. The, the lack of ego of Di Maria is for a top player with his CV is, is just absolutely astonishing. You know, you, you, you talked about the Messi triumph in that Copa America. Well, who scored the goal? Di Maria, you know. Who scored the goal in the other Messi triumph, the, the Olympics in Beijing 2008 when they beat Nigeria in the final? Di Maria. Um, 2014 when they got close, Di Maria goes off injured half an hour into the quarterfinal against Belgium. They don't score another goal in the tournament. You know, Di Maria... Uh, and that structure of the team, the structure of the midfield, allowing him to flit around a little bit, flank to flank. Di Maria is, is, is a really important player as well. Yeah, as you mentioned, the defensive side of it, obviously, uh, the emergence of Christian Romero has probably been significant there and also Emiliano Martinez, uh, yeah. as well as a, as a goalkeeper, given what we saw in 2018 with a, mm -hmm. a mess with Willy Caballero there. But up front, um, on a final point for Argentina, uh, obviously, Lautaro Martinez at Inter Milan has been uh, has been a great find. But also, yeah. it's interesting to watch Julian Alvarez now with Manchester City, and he seems to have hit the ground running. Uh, how much of Alvarez are we going to see? And just um, what is the relationship like on the pitch, I guess, between Messi coming in from the right and Martinez leading the line? It's, it's got better and better. That, that's one of the things which has really come on with Argentina, the understanding between, between the two of them. Um, yeah, Alvarez starts as a reserve, but as I always like saying, the World Cup is like time speeded up. You know, the, the teams can suddenly fall apart. They can suddenly come together during, during the course of the competition. And he's such a clever player and he's such a good combinations player we haven't seen too much of it yet, a link up between Messi and Alvarez. But it's one of those things that could well click during during the course of the World Cup. Yeah, and I suppose a final point. In Brazil or Argentina, has there been much uh, discussion in regards to the issue of human rights in Qatar? And if not, is there much, is it sort of a function of both countries, as has been well documented, uh, they, they've had military dictatorships as recently as the 70s and 80s, and perhaps there's more of a focus on those historical abuses um, internally, as opposed to thinking too much about what's happening in other countries or externally. Yeah, and uh, many people have been calling for a military dictatorship in, in Brazil over the last few days. No, uh, no I think that's mainly a, a European issue. And Australia as well. Australia, the, the, the team seemed to be adamant to, to make a stand in Australia. Uh, and certainly the Brazilian players aren't going to do anything like that. Um, the Argentine players are, are, are certainly much more anti-dictatorship, anti the history of, of their own military dictatorship. Brazil's coach will, will stress his humanist credentials but the whole issue of the World Cup being where it's where where it is, I think, is far far more controversial in 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 Europe than it is in South America.
Yeah, for sure. But we'll see how the, the tournament goes on. As we said at the beginning, Ecuador are going to be the first of the South American teams we see on 20 November. And then we'll see Uruguay, Brazil and Argentina as it goes on. And quite possibly one of one of those three teams uh, lifting the uh, lifting the trophy on the 18th of December. But Tim Vickery, thanks very much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. All right, that is Tim Vickery, um, always brilliant. And uh, that brings us pretty much to the end. Uh, Graham and Ollie, we'll just get your World Cup picks before we go. Um, so, Graham, first, uh, are you kind of sticking with the South American team? Do you think kind of uh, it'll be Brazil or Argentina, or do you actually think a European team might claim at this time? Uh, it's funny, I had a conversation with my son on the way, walking down to school this morning. I said to him, like, what are we going with? What's your top three? And he says, I'm going to go Brazil. And he want he picked Uruguay, and for some reason, I don't know. And he says, uh, "What about the Germans?" And he goes, "No, we we'll go with France." And so his picks were Brazil, Uruguay, France. I'm gonna go Brazil, Argentina, and yeah, I just think the Germans as well. I just you can't run off the Germans. It's the Germans, Ali. Yeah, <laughs> you never yeah. discount them, can you? In, yeah. in the world, yeah. But just even when you're looking at Brazil, I was just looking through the squad. Like, look at their forwards: Martinelli, Vinicius Junior, Neymar, Anthony, Rodrigo, Rafinha, Richarlis. Like, how do you how do you keep all them happy? How how, how many of them do you get on the pitch at the same time? And like, it's an embarrassment. The riches up top, and obviously they have a decent goalkeeper and some other decent players. A couple around. of decent goalkeepers, yeah. yeah, a couple of decent goalkeepers. In fairness, so yeah, I, I, I'm not going one, two, three like Graham. I just I'll go with Brazil. Yeah, uh, Brazil's be number one. Yeah, I have uh, a couple of jerseys on the way for the lads. I, th- I think maybe from a European spot, Holland might might do something. They, I think they'll come out of that group anyway. Um, they've got. Who's Sonny going with Alda? He's still studying it. He's still studying he, it at the moment. Has the old wall chart out, does he? That's it, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but yeah, he'll he'll come up with his picks. So um but yeah, no, I'll 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 stick with Brazil for it. Yeah, as Tim Vickery said, they are the justified favourites for it. So we'll see whether that's there's any truth in that. And anyway, Belgium, Dark Horse, Belgium. You heard it here first. Okay, we'll 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 see about that. I think Shea Given also said Belgium as well. There's been a, there's been a couple of people who picked them as well. Uh, the fading golden generation, whether they still have enough uh, have enough in them to to go to get across the line, we'll see. But if you have a Kevin De Bruyne in your team, literally anything can happen. But anyway, we're going to have all those games live on RT Two and the RT Player from the opening game on Sunday all the way to the final. Just check the TV listings or just go to the World Cup 2022 section on rt.ie slash sport and you'll find details of how and when you can watch all those games. Also, today at five o'clock, there's a kickoff between the Ireland women's team and Morocco in a friendly. So that's the end of their training camp. Um, as I said, RT News Channel uh, coverage should start about 4.55pm. But that brings us to a close. Graham and Ollie, thanks a million for coming on this week. Cheers, Raf. Thank you. Brilliant. Thanks, Raf. Thanks, Raf.